Most of you know, uh, I'm sure you heard the news, that Timothy Keller passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Um, pastor up in New York for a long, long time, very, very influential in the Christian world. Uh, wrote many, many books, many good books. I read a handful of them, and one of them is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a helpful book. Part one is Understanding the Furnace. Part two, Facing the Furnace. And then part three, Walking with God in the Furnace. And part three has a number of chapters walking, weeping, trusting, praying, thinking, thanking, and loving, and then the final chapter of the book, hoping. In this chapter on hoping, the very last in the book, Keller writes this, there is nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. The erosion or loss of hope is what makes suffering unbearable. And here at the end of the Bible is the ultimate hope. He had just quoted Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Here at the end of the Bible is the ultimate hope, a material world in which all suffering is gone, every tear wiped from our eyes. This is a life-transforming, living hope. Who was John writing to in the book of Revelation? He was writing to people who were suffering terrible things. Verse 4 shows you the list. He was writing to people who were experiencing death and mourning and crying and pain. This book was written near the end of the first century when we know the Roman emperor Domitian was conducting large-scale persecutions of Christians. Some had their homes taken away and plundered while some were sent into the arena to be torn to pieces by wild beasts as the crowds watched. Others were impaled on stakes and, while still alive, covered with pitch and lit afire. This is what the readers of this book were facing. And what did John give them so that they could face it all? John gave them the ultimate hope, a new heavens and a new earth that was coming. That is what he gave them to face it. And it is a simple fact of history that it worked. We know that the early Christians took their suffering with great poise and peace, and they sang hymns as the beasts were tearing them apart, and they forgave the people who were killing them. And so the more they were killed, the more the Christian movement grew. Why? Because when people watched Christians dying like that, they said, these people have got something. Well, do you know what they had? They had this. It is a living hope. We're going to look at Revelation 21 this morning, and maybe you've heard the song, sung the song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. I've thought this morning as I was taking my Sunday morning walk and thinking about this sermon, Oh, for a thousand brains to understand. And oh, for a thousand tongues to preach a passage like this. I'll do my best. I think there's three things for us here. The first is this, and we got to move fairly quick. Be encouraged because the new creation is surely coming. Let me read verses one to five. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. When Jesus comes, as he most assuredly will, he is going to defeat all of his enemies and ours. We've seen it in the last few chapters. The world system headed by Satan that leaves God out, Babylon is gone. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The beast or the Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire. The false prophet along with him thrown into the lake of fire. Satan, we saw in chapter 20, thrown into the lake of fire. All unbelievers sadly thrown into the lake of fire. And what comes next in this vision is a new heavens and a new earth. And John says that the old junk will be no more. That first phrase, or first in, in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's the heaven and earth that you and I live in now that has been tainted by sin and all of the consequences that come along with it. And in verse 4, as one said, this is probably the best loved, most quoted, and most uplifting words in the entire book. There he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the crying will be no more. There will no longer be any death. That last enemy will be no more. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Human troubles gone forever. The first earth, the first heaven, passed away. We could look at 2 Peter 3. We could look at Romans chapter 8 and think about what exactly does that mean that this current heavens and earth will pass away. I think that it means that it's going to be transformed. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be changed. And it's going to be, we're going to see, beautiful. Not only will the old junk be no more, but the good stuff will come about. The old creation, purified, renewed, transformed, will usher in to the new heavens and the new earth. 
And in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You know, 21, chapter 21 can be a little bit confusing when we think about this holy city, this New Jerusalem that's coming down. Because it seems to be portrayed as the place where the people of God will live. So it's a place. But if you look further down in verse 9, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so it's, it's seen as a place for sure, but also seemingly a person or people as well. But I think if we put these two together in chapter 21, John is seeing for us and God is revealing to him that in the age to come, the people of God, the perfected people of God will be living in a perfected place with God forever and forever. And this is a holy city. It's contrasted with that evil and grotesque city of Babylon that we saw in chapter 17 and 18. This one is filled with righteousness. The destiny that you and I will enjoy forever is a holy place. And it's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Breathtakingly beautiful. Remember back to your wedding day? I remember mine. Tara and I got married at First Baptist Church, Dallas. And of course, Pastor James Skinner and I, along with my groomsmen, came on out, and we stood at the front, and then at First Baptist Dallas, they had this huge pipe organ. Dun, 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 dun. Is that pretty good? And then what does everybody do? Everybody rises and turns towards the back, and the doors come open, and there's the bride adorned for her husband. Brides spend all day, if not longer, getting ready for that moment. And they look absolutely beautiful. And so does the New Jerusalem. We'll say more about that in a moment. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is wonderful, you all. This has been the anticipation of the Bible. I want to give you just a few verses from the Old Testament that looked forward to this day in its fullness of God, his people dwelling together. Genesis 17, verse 8, and I will give you Give to you and to your descendants after you the land where you live as a stranger. This is God to Abraham. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In Exodus 29, God says to his people, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Leviticus 26, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations 
so that I might be their God, I am the Lord. God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, or David said to the Lord, I'm sorry, you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Jeremiah 31, looking forward to the new covenant that Jesus would bring about, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Later in chapter 31, For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 11, Ezekiel 11, So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. They will be my people, and I shall be their God. Ezekiel 37, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their offenses, but I will rescue them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 37, 27, my dwelling place also will be among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Here's the ultimate fulfillment of all of that expectation of our great God and His people and He dwelling among them. Y'all know I love it when we sing it. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Come back to it as John continues on. John says, verse 5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So verses 1 to 5 seem to be the announcement of the new heavens and new earth that is coming. And with this announcement... God says to John, write it down because I want my people of all ages to know it, to remember it, to bank on it, and live in light of it. That all of the hardship, all of the pain and suffering that they are enduring now will one day be no more. These words are faithful and true. So be encouraged. But then I think he wants us to be ready. In verses 6 to 8, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God's purposes, this moment, When all of his enemies and ours have been defeated and with the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth where he will be with his people in a beautiful place forevermore, those purposes are now complete. They're final. 
I think it's good for us to remember this is not only coming to the end of the book of Revelation, this is coming to the end of the Bible. And here at this moment in the story, it's done. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. And thus there is a finality to the destinies of people. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Who is it that's going to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth forevermore? It's God's people who thirst and who overcome. And we know who that is in the book of Revelation. It's Christians. It's people who have thirsted for forgiveness and thirsted for God and thirsted for his work in their lives. They have seen themselves needy and they have looked to God in his provision of Jesus Christ who lived and died for them. They're thirsty and so they go to him and they find spiritual refreshment. They find the living water who is Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Revelation, they overcome. They persevere. They conquer. I think that's a good reminder for us that being a Christian is not merely looking to Jesus to simply forgive you of your sins so you can then go back to the life that you were living. But it's looking to Jesus Christ not only for the forgiveness of sins, but to be the king of one's life. And so we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, but then we follow him and we persevere and we overcome Because as we know from the book of Revelation, it won't always be easy. And so the destiny of those who thirst and who overcome, they will inherit these things and this relationship with God, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, and we've seen it time and time and time again, the Bible teaches, the book of Revelation teaches an eternal conscious torment away from the presence of God for unrepentant sinners. So be ready. Don't let this be you. The reality is that every single one of those sins that are mentioned there can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. There is no sin too big, too deep, too wide, 
that the great power and mercy and grace and kindness of God cannot forgive. You'll come to him thirsty. You say, I am a coward. I am immoral. I am an idolater. I am a liar. But I don't want to spend eternity in the lake of fire. I want to be forgiven and I want Christ as king. You come to him. Empty hands. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You come to him pleading for mercy and grace. And he gives it. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. This new age is coming. Be ready. Trust in Jesus and follow him. And this inheritance will be yours. And then the best I could do for the rest of the chapter is be blessed. In verses 9 all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, John describes for us further this holy city, Jerusalem, that is coming down from heaven. I don't think we're meant to look at this as a literal description of what it's going to be. But again, like we've seen throughout the book, symbolic apocalyptic language that is communicating to us magnificent truths. Verses 10 and 11, it's going to be stunningly beautiful. Let's start in 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, if, if you like these kind of things, you'll remember back in 17.1, we saw this same angel saying the same thing to John when he showed him the great harlot who is Babylon. And so now, God is going to show John and us the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crisp, crystal clear jasper. So this place that you and I are going to enjoy forever is going to be stunningly beautiful. It has the glory of God. It's brilliance was like very costly stone. It's dazzling. It's splendid to behold. All of us have had the experience of walking into a beautiful room and going, wow, this is beautiful. Well, this is going to outshine any beautiful place that you and I have ever been. It has the glory of God. It's brilliant and dazzling and splendid. So it'll be stunningly beautiful. Secondly, it will be completely safe. And there's a handful of phrases, I think, in here that point us in that direction. The first is this, verse 12. It had a great and high wall. In the ancient world, you protected your cities by walls. And this city that John sees 
has a great and high wall. We'll see how high in just a moment. But this wall signifies its security. It is secure against any threat. He then says, with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. So we'll see that around this city, there's going to be three gates on each side, north, south, east, and west, and above each of the gates, angels. And that may be hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3 when the angel was put to the Garden of Eden to guard it. So most believe these angels signify supernatural protection from any hostile force. Let me just keep reading. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This may be stretching it a little bit, but, but on each of the gates, the names are written of the 12 sons of Israel. And on the 12 foundation stones, the names of the 12 apostles. And of course, these seemingly represent the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God. And as we have seen in the book of Revelation, when you write your name, you belong to me. You are safe and secure. goes on, we'll come back to this, but the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Your translation may do it for you, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal he measured its wall 72 yards, according to the measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Apparently, this, this wall of this city that John sees is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high. Now, you think, is this a literal city, <laughs> right? At 62 miles, you're out of the Earth's atmosphere. This is 1,500 miles. We'll come back to that. But 72 yards deep are the walls around this city. And if we get down close, verse 25, the gates will never be closed. You don't have to lock this place up because there are no threats, no bad guys with any bad intentions. And so all of that to say, not only will it be stunningly beautiful, it will be completely safe. Another thing, I think it will be lovingly relational. We've already mentioned it, but the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, these are the people of God across the ages. And some believe maybe the, the gates on each side of the walls represent the people of God coming from all over the earth to be a part of this city. From every tribe and people and nation and tongue, a multinational people of God. 
No divisions among them, no disregard for one another, but unity and love, harmony and joy. Another thing, maybe it's impressively holy. Now back to the measurements of this thing. It's a cube. It's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high. If you're familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle and then the temple. The tabernacle had the holy place and then there was a veil and behind the veil was the holy of holies. And it's inside the veil or inside the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt among Israel as they traveled through the wilderness and the tabernacle and then when Solomon built the temple there in Jerusalem. The holy of holies is a cube. This is a cube. This, this city, this vision that John sees, this symbolic representation of the age to come, it's the holy of holies. It's a massive place where God's presence is going to dwell. God dwelt in the garden with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the day, but then they sinned, and they were cast out. And God, God's presence no longer dwelling intimately with his people. But as time went along, God's intention was to what? To dwell again with his people. And so he instituted the tabernacle. And inside the Holy of Holies, his presence would come and dwell among the people. And then David wanted to build God a house, and Solomon would then build a temple in 1 Kings 6 and 7 and 8, and God's presence would dwell there in the Holy of Holies. And then Jesus came, and Jesus himself said that he was the temple of God, and, and, and the presence of God was dwelling among the people in him. And then we who unite ourselves to him by faith, we become what? The Bible says, Paul says it, Peter says it, we are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in us. But even as true as that is, it's not the ultimate expression of God dwelling again with his people. That's coming. In the new heavens and new earth, God is going to dwell with his people and it will be so significant, you see it over in chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face. We're going to see him face to face. God is going to dwell again with us in the new heavens and the new earth in an unmediated way. This Massive holy of holies was measured with a golden measuring rod. In verse 18, the, mirial, the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Verse 21, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. There was gold in the Garden of Eden. The holy of holies was marked as a material of gold. And here in this future day, 
this vision, this is going to be a massive place where God's presence dwells with us. The material is pure gold. The foundation stones in 19 of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first stone was jasper, the second sapphire, and he he goes on and tells them all. These are no doubt beautiful. You'll remember back in Revelation chapter 4 when we got the peek into the throne room of God. The emerald, the sardis, the jasper were all mentioned in this beautiful vision of the holy glory of God. And now this place that's being described has all of those and more. One said the foundation stones of the walls are described as dazzling and costly gems to represent God's glorious presence with his people in this city. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Let's keep going. This one was hard. In verse 22 and following, what to say about it? Come up with your own. But I said it's markedly lacking, and here's why I say that. In verse 22, I saw no temple in it. Verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or the moon. And down there in verse 27, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying. So he's been telling us what he sees, and then he tells us what he doesn't see. He doesn't see a temple. The idea seems to be that there's no need for a physical building to serve as a locus of worship when God himself is present everywhere. There's no sun or moon. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And you see it again in chapter 22, verse 5. There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Does, I, I don't know, does this mean in the new heavens and new earth that has been renewed and transformed and revitalized and, and made new that, that there's not going to be any sun, moon, or stars? I'd like to think it doesn't mean that. The sun, moon, and stars seem to show us the glory of God as much as anything. If indeed it does mean that, then so be it. It's going to be wonderful. But I wonder if the imagery is not meant to be pushed too far and is simply meant to to let us know that there will be no darkness. And what does darkness symbolize in the Bible? Evil and sin. Remember, Paul would say things like, we are not of the darkness, we're of the light. Jesus would talk about the darkness 
and the light. And maybe, maybe, maybe these, this is just symbols to let us know that in the age to come, no evil, no sin, no impurity, nothing like that. And no sinners. Verse 27, nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Next, wonderfully satisfying. Chapter 22, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. So there's a, there's a river with water, and it's clear, and it's clean, and it's pure. And I'm sure it's going to be cool, if not cold, and refreshing, and replenishing. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life to satisfy and to sustain us, and to give us health forevermore. We'll never be thirsty again. We'll never be hungry again. We'll never be sick again. No more cancer. No more diabetes. No more depression. No more anxiety. The old things will be no more. And then finally, eternally blessed. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. Maybe you've seen some of it already, but if you've never done this, go home and read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 and do it over and over and over again. But, well, Genesis 1 and 2 won't even get you there. What comes about in Genesis 3? the curse. And it's used over and over and over again in those early chapters of Genesis. As a result of sin, a curse has come upon the earth. And then in chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and God begins his plan to bring what to the entire world? Blessing. He's going to bless his people. And here is the fulfillment of it all. The curse is gone. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Again, God dwelling with his people. And his bondservants will serve him. That's what we've been meant to do from the very beginning. And they will see his face. In theology, this is sometimes called the beatific vision. This is, this is it. When... Would Paul say, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Jesus said, the pure in heart shall see God. When Moses asked God, show me your glory, God had to put him in the cleft of a rock and only allow him to see his back. But no more. In this day, we will see him 
The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, as he is, it will be amazing. And the relationship will be secure. His name will be on their foreheads. Don't think this means that in the age to come, you and I will have God's name upon our forehead. I think it's symbolic. Whenever you put your name on something, you're saying, it belongs to me. We will be his people, and he will be our God. There will no longer be any night, no darkness, no evil. They'll have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and forever. You and I were created by God to be a kingdom of priests. Priests in the sense that we were to have relationship with God and to represent Him. And kings in the sense that we were to, in his place on the earth, reign and rule and have dominion. But, of course, sin goofed that all up. And God's been at it to bring all of this to pass. What are we called now? What, what, what was Israel meant to be in Exodus chapter 19? A kingdom of priests. And what does God now call his New Testament church? A kingdom of priests. And we've seen it in the early chapters of Revelation that we are a kingdom of priests. And here we are finally reigning on the earth forever and forever. It's time to go. Chris Tomlin. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. I don't think I did it justice, but by God's grace, might this vision of what is to come sustain you and me and help you and me to endure. To not make our friendship with Babylon, with the world, but rather to continue in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, clinging to him and following him and his ways no matter what it might cost us. The pain and the suffering, the hardship the persecution, the mocking, the scorn, and whatever may come our way. May what is to come be a hope that we cling to, we hold to, and we live in light of. Let's pray. Indeed, what a God you are from beginning to end, sovereign in establishing your plans and in ultimately fulfilling your plans. And Lord, 
it looks like it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be glorious. The best part about it is you will be there. Might we be like Moses of old? When Israel sinned with the golden calf, and you all can just listen to me for a moment. When Israel sinned in Exodus 32, 33, with the golden calf, God threatened to do away with the nation and start over with Moses. Moses pled with God and God relented. And then Moses, or God said, listen, you all will go up and you will inherit the land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. In so many words, I don't want the blessings of the land if you're not going to be there with us. I'd rather be in the wilderness of Sinai with you than in the land of promise without you. God, make that true of us as well. As beautiful as the age to come will be in this new heavens and new earth, as wonderful as it will be. Tune our hearts such that the best thing about it for us will be that you are there. That we will be with you and dwell with you and see you face to face. And Father, if there's any here today who, who've never turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and to be reconciled to God such that these promises will most assuredly be theirs. Might you draw them now to see your greatness and your glory and to see their sinfulness, but to see with the eyes of faith that you have sent Jesus for sinners like them. And might you draw them to turn away from themselves and to put their hope and their trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And we will pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.